0: Now I love the Bible uh, for many reasons. I find it has the ring of truth for lots of different reasons, but one of the reasons is this, is that it it always tells the truth about human existence. It describes the world that I see in front of my eyes. Uh, The Song of Songs, which is a It's a book full of romance and passion it is no mere fairy tale for if it was it would have surely ended at chapter 5 verse 1 two people meet they fall in love they overcome many obstacles and they finally get married and they live happily ever after that's that's the story isn't it that's the rom-com story It's got a certain charm to it, but it doesn't describe marriage in the real world. We've already had some indicators that this is a relationship lived in the real world. We've heard about angry half-brothers that have made life difficult. We've heard about insecurity, about body image. We've heard about the little foxes that can ruin the blossom in the vineyard of love, but these... Two people overcame these challenges, and uh, after the pain of waiting, they got married. They had an amazing wedding day, uh, a wonderful wedding night, and so now they're married. I mean, all they've yearned for has come to pass. And now they're man and wife, so now endless bliss, isn't that right? Um, Everyone who is married is happy, is that right? Well, the love song continues, but it continues in a more of a discordant note. After they've talked about their love and their love making being a bit like the Garden of Eden, well, what we see here is that every marriage takes place in the real world, which is outside the Garden, east of Eden. So take a look at chapter 5, verse 2. Because the honeymoon seems to be over so quickly. And in its place, we hear about an apathetic marriage. So let me tell you, this is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to look at an apathetic marriage. And if that sounds just depressing to you, I'm going to give you two reasons of how to overcome apathy. Okay, that's, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So let's think about this apathetic marriage in chapter 5, verse 2. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Is she half asleep, half awake, just dropping off when all this actually happened? Or is, is this another dream sequence? It certainly has dream-like qualities. Surprising things suddenly out of nowhere. Maybe this is a bad dream that lets us know something about the difficulties they're experiencing as two newly wed people. Let's remember, it is a song we're reading. Uh, This is not a bit of reportage, of prose. Uh, This is a song that is to evoke a mood, an emotion, a vibe. But as she's falling asleep, she hears her beloved knocking vigorously on the door because he's locked out. Perhaps they'd already agreed to a a romantic evening after uh, he came home from work. But the lovely meal got ruined as time dragged on. The candle burnt right to the end and the house, well, she decides to lock up and just apply her night moisturizers to her hand and face. and, And she gets into bed and she's just drifting off to sleep when she hears him knocking on the door it is so late so late and look he still sounds rather hopeful open to me my sister my darling my dove my flawless one my head is drenched with dew my hair with the dampness of the night Now, how is she feeling about the situation well it's all very human isn't it at this point she really can't be bothered look at verse three i've taken off my robe must i put it on again i've washed my feet must i soil them again wow this apathy did not take long did it now there's various internet memes going out there which kind of go like this how it started and how it's going so how did it start well Remember chapter 1, verse 2? Before they were married, in those early days of dating, her great desire was this man would get her into his bedroom. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth. Take me away with you. Let us hurry. Let the king bring me into his chamber. That's how it started. How's it going? Chapter 5, verse 3. Well, the king married her. And now she's living in the palace. Uh, She's all cozy and comfortable in the king's bed. But when the king turns up at a very inconvenient time, she really can't be bothered. (laughs) She was nearly asleep. I was nearly asleep. It just feels like too much hassle to kind of get out of bed, put on a bathrobe, and get her feet dirty again to walk across the room just to... Unlock the door and welcoming him? I mean, she's, she's not minded to inconvenience herself at all for him. Frankly, she can't be bothered. Now, why is this such a helpful part of the song that's here in the Bible? Well, firstly, because it's biblical realism about marriage. It's so honest. It's so truthful about our human predicament. I remember when I was engaged to Shona... Uh, I was in a Bible study group in Glasgow, and it was whole sorts of angels in the group. And we were studying through the book of Titus. And honestly, as I read it, I couldn't understand why this was in the Bible. And And I said this actually out loud to my embarrassment. I said... Now, why is it that older women are instructed to teach younger women how to love their husbands? Why is that in the Bible? Didn't make sense to me as a young, engaged man. And this older woman smiled at me and tuttered, and she said, oh, young love. Now, 30 years on, I understand this. I understand this. But when you do marriage prep sometimes with a a young young couple, you do look at them and think, they really think that they're going to, They're going to beat all the odds, and they're going to have the perfect marriage. Never a crossword. No tension. I mean, that's how they seem to act. And I would say to those people about to get married this summer, it's best to get rid of those foolish notions really early. Dave Harvey wrote a very helpful book on marriage with a great title, When Sinners Say I Do. That's the challenge of marriage, isn't it? When Sinners Say I Do. It's all too easy when you're married to take your spouse for granted. It's all too easy to forget how amazing this person is that they should link their life to you as a life partner. And and it's so easy for personal selfishness to spoil the intimacy of marriage. I mean, was his late return unavoidable or was it because he was selfish? Uh, Was all this talk of... uh, uh, love talk, a bit insensitive considering the time he turned up. Well, we don't know. But he does want to be with her. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. And she's thinking, yeah, right. Must I? Must I? And so couples about to get married, be prepared for this. These tensions, these times of apathy, don't mean that you've married the wrong person. It doesn't mean it's all over. As you're going to see, we're going to work, they work through this tricky moment, and it does actually seem to get worse before it gets better, by the way. But this is biblical realism about marriage. But it also serves as a spiritual warning, I think, to us as Christians. It is quite possible to enjoy all the benefits of being united to Christ, and to so focus on those benefits that we actually become apathetic to our actual relationship with Jesus. See, one of the things I have observed about church life now for many over many decades of being in churches is that some people love to come along to church because they love the community. They love to hear the music. They love to join in the singing. They, they actually enjoy the times of quiet. They enjoy the fact there's a crash. They can give their kids to somebody else and have peace and rest in a service for a while. And actually, they can come along. They might even find that they found a life partner here, and they get married, and they have kids. And, the, and there's so many blessings that flow out of being united to Christ, being part of Christ's community. It's just that they're not that into Jesus. If Jesus was to make a demand upon their life that inconvenienced them in some way, well, they'd rather stay with their comforts than go and open the door and let Jesus into the whole of their lives. Well, let him in part of the way, but not to every aspect of our lives. We don't want him messing around with our careers or our hobbies or our bank balance or... our our relationships in a way that would inconvenience us and the truth is is that we can be sleepy christians you know half awake half asleep enjoying our rests and comforts so that we no longer pay attention to king jesus who is wanting in on the whole of our lives now churches can get like this as we remembered last week, um, the church in Laodicea described in the book of Revelation, they, how did they see themselves? How things are going? Well, they were rich. They were wealthy. They were comfortable. They were happy in their church life, in their half-hearted, apathetic, lukewarm state. They, they were doing fine. So much so that they had noticed, had not noticed, that the very person who was the reason for the church wasn't even in the building. He was outside the church. He was knocking on the door and said, Can I come in, please? Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And the thing that we need to remember is that he is. The King, the King of Kings, and the Church is His bride. There is something so tragic about a Church without Jesus at the center of it. But He wants in. If you notice, in the song, the husband starts rattling the door. There must have been some latch hole that you can get your fingers through, and he's trying to get to the bolt mechanism and. Verse four, my beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. The sight of his hand, trying to get at the bolt, wakes her up to the situation. But by the time she finally acts, it seems to be too late. Look at verse five. "I arose to open for my beloved, and my hands drip with myrrh. Was that the kind of the moisturizer? I don't know. My fingers with the flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt, I opened for my beloved. But my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called for him, but he he did not answer. What Joni Mitchell sang about ecology can also be true about relationships. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Her selfish response that delayed to move towards him delayed too long. And so when she came to finally open up the door, he was gone. That heart-sinking moment when you know you've blown it. Those stupid words, those, that petulant display. And suddenly you deeply regret that the one you loved has gone. She looks. No sight of him. She calls. No answer. The heart that begun to pound sinks like an absolute stone. He's gone. And she kind of gets desperate. It's like a state of panic almost. She heads out into the streets of the city late at night in a dressing gown. And she's looking and she's calling for her beloved. And this to me just makes me think it does feel like a dream sequence. A bit of a nightmare. For now, with her beloved gone, she's all alone in the city without his protection. And she gets roughed up by the night watchman. They mistake her for some sort of floozy. And they, they take her cloak. She's, she's left sounds almost like she's left naked on the street. She's exposed. She's bruised. Her selfish actions have just spiraled downwards into this absolute nightmare. In fact, into a very scandalous moment. And then another dreamlike element, suddenly other women in the dream appear and she calls out to the daughters of Jerusalem, charging them, if you find my beloved, what will you tell him? It's as if it's an appeal for them not to tell her husband about her behavior that caused this nighttime scandal. It's not entirely sure exactly what's going on in some of these bits, but she does want them to pass on this message that if if they find him, that she is lovesick for him. Tell him, she says, I am faint with love. Now, just a few reflections on this. This is surely a warning about the damaging impact of being selfish in a marriage. If it goes on repeatedly, unchecked, then the damage can grow and grow, and we might find that when we finally move towards the person that we love, it might be too late. See, our words matter. Our actions matter. They're either going to strengthen or weaken our marriages. Secondly, this is a warning to churches that leave Jesus on the outside for too long. Churches and denominational leaders can love all the trappings of church life, but be happy to leave the risen Lord Jesus Christ out. Only on Friday, I saw a tweet by an Anglican minister who wrote this, I love everything about my job, and I wouldn't do anything else, but I don't believe in God. I reckon a decent-sized minority of my peers are the same. Now, I mean, that lacks both integrity as well as being totally tragic, isn't it? To miss out on on the best thing. God, he is the good news. To have him is the good news. And if you don't think he's there, why would you waste your time? Especially in an Anglican church wearing funny hats and funny dresses. I don't get it. To ignore his word and to pursue our own comfort and even pursue the things he hates is going to make us obsolete and absolutely worthless as a church. Jesus warns the church, again, the church in Ephesus in the book of Revelation, that they had forsaken their first love. And if they don't repent, he would come and he would remove their lampstand. They, they, would, they wouldn't be his church anymore. And I think there's a warning to, to our souls, I and mean, we've already considered here, Uh, in this series, about this peculiar thing that Christians can experience where we feel an absence of Christ. And we can see that it happens not through any fault of our own. It's part of the experience of believers. But we should notice here that the sense of absence of Christ has come because of selfishness. Because of ignoring and pursuing selfishness. And what I want to say is that there are seasons and times of opportunity for us as Christians. And if we miss them, they are gone. Healthy gospel-centered churches do not always stay healthy and united. And our access to Christian fellowship can suddenly be taken away. I mean, that's what we've experienced in COVID, isn't it? We just assumed that every Sunday we'd be able to go to church. Every Sunday we'd be able to sing. And it went like that. And who knows about our health? I mean, a very healthy football player can collapse on a pitch and nearly lose his life. We can't presume that Oh, we're always going to have tomorrow and tomorrow and next month. Next month I'll be serious about, you know, with Jesus. But I've got other things going on right now. Don't presume. Today, if you hear Jesus knocking on the door of your heart, open the door to him. Do not delay. Whether that's for the first time or whether you've just been ignoring him for a while. If you hear him today, move towards him. Now, what can be done when we're feeling apathetic? This is, I think, where the questions of the friends are very helpful. When I first started studying this book, I honestly read these a bit more sarcastically and negatively. You know, it's all about tone, isn't it? How is your beloved better than others, most beautiful of women? You could imagine uh, the Daughters of Jerusalem saying it like that. But I heard a really helpful uh, talk by Pete Woodcock on this. And I think I'm convinced by his argument that these friends are actually trying to be helpful. And what we're reading here are two great questions uh, for apathetic spouses to think about. Or two great questions for apathetic Christians to think about if we want to offer them biblical counsel. Two great biblical counseling questions, okay? Here's the first one. How is your beloved better than others? See, this woman has got herself into this crisis and this potential scandal. She's emotionally distraught. She's bruised. She's fearful because of her selfish actions. And so the friends say, well, how how is your beloved better than others? I mean, they're being playful, I think, to provoke her. I mean, he's just a bloke. He's a typical bloke. All blokes leave in the end, don't they? Well, well what's, what are you making a fuss about this man? He's just like all the other men. Well, that just gets her thinking. What do you mean? He's just like other men. Oh, no. Verse 10. My beloved is radiant and ruddy. Outstanding among 10,000. I mean, they've round her up, and off she goes. She starts recalling. The man that she loves. And in her love, her estimation of a man is absolutely stratospheric. Put up 10,000 men, my man stands out among 10,000 men. (laughs) From head to toe, he's pure gold. Look at verse 11. His head is purest gold. Verse 14, his arms... Are rods of gold. Verse 15, his feet and toes are pure gold from head to toe. He's pure gold. He's kingly, he's precious, he's imperishable, he's dazzling. And while she does praise his buff, uh, handsome, attractive body, that his whole appearance is, is like someone strong and tall, like the cedars of Lebanon, really the focus. At the beginning and the end is his face, a full head of black hair, quite possibly a black beard suffused with nice-smelling perfumes on his cheeks. Uh, those eyes they're like, like jewels fo- floating in, in pure milk, and they're alert and lively, like, like doves. His lips, they're like lilies. Uh, In his words and in his kisses. And look how she finishes verse 16. His mouth is sweetness itself. He is altogether lovely. This is my beloved. This is my friend, daughters of Jerusalem. Do you see what this question has provoked in her? It has moved her from being focused on herself to being preoccupied with her beloved. If she started this song being kind of apathetic towards her husband, the question has caused her to recall and uh, recount the reasons why she loves him so much. He's not like any other man. This one who is her lover, her friend, he is all altogether lovely. Now, I think there's something important here that will help apathetic marriages. The way back is to stop thinking about yourself, to deny self, to stop making the marriage all about you, me, and to never lose sight of what attracted you to this person in the first place. To not take what you've got for granted, but to notice, again, the beauty of the one who captured your heart from the very beginning. I'm reading a fascinating book by Malcolm Gladwell at the moment uh, entitled Blink. And his big idea is that there's a part of your brain that makes snap, helpful decisions even before you're conscious of it. But in it, he recounts the research of uh, a man called John Gottman. And uh, John Gottman has uh, done studies of marriages that are struggling over years, filmed lots of couples, married couples talking together, and followed the story of their lives. And actually, he's got to a place now where he says he just has to watch three minutes of a video conversation between a husband and wife, and he can very accurately predict whether they're going to stay married or whether they're going to get divorced. Just three minutes. And what is the crucial thing that he's listening out for? He's looking to see if either of them show any signs of contempt for the other. Our words matter. Tender, loving speech is critical for maintaining a healthy, warm marriage. Words that praise and build up the other person are so important, while indifference and contempt will destroy a marriage. In fact, it will destroy any sort of relationship. And I think this is also an important principle if we have become apathetic Christians. You know, if we find that we're spending lots of time being self-focused and we're obsessed about our own comforts and we're moaning a lot about uh, the perceived hardships of our Christian life, You know, the hardships of getting out of bed in the morning to read the Bible or to pray. The hardships of having to book tickets and come down to church. When apathy starts kicking in, then we need to be freshly stirred to consider the incomparable Christ. Who is the reason that we gather. Who is at the very center of this church. How is your Jesus better than others? Do you know anyone who compares to Jesus? Not a rhetorical question, I'd be really interested to know. Do you know anyone? I I don't. I don't know anyone. I mean, his teachings are incredible. Those parables are amazing. Those words that he said just always turn me upside down. Love your enemies. Who says that? We're in a canceled culture where stupid things you tweeted as an 18-year-old will ruin your cricket career. We just don't know what forgiveness is. We desperately need it. We don't do it. No reason to do it. But listen to Jesus. Think about the power of his words. Who can still the storm. Who can raise the dead to life. Who can take a demon-possessed person tortured out of their mind... And with words bring them to sanity and peace and restoration. Whose hands touched the leper, that incurable condition of its day. Those feet that walked on water. Those feet that took him all around Israel, preaching and proclaiming the news of the kingdom and the good news that was for everyone. Do you know anyone who compares to Jesus? He who willingly offered up his back to be scourged, who offered his face to be spat upon, who allowed the very ones whom he had created to pull the hairs out of his beard, who submitted that his hands and feet would be nailed to a cross and who then said father forgive them for they do not know what they're doing do you know anyone like jesus does anyone compare to jesus Think of the glory of Jesus. Remember the disciples just had a brief insight into his glory during his earthly ministry when he was transfigured before them and the glory just kind of blinded their eyes. Saul on the Damascus Road saw the risen and glorified Christ in heaven and it threw him to the ground and it blinded him. The sight of his glory. The Apostle John saw a vision of Jesus standing among his churches, and his eyes were like blazing fire, his feet like glowing bronze, his voice like the rushing waters, his face shone like the brilliance of the sun in the middle of the day, and... John fell down before him like a dead man until he felt the hand of Jesus go on him and heard the words, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I tell you, he's not merely... Outstanding among ten thousands, He is incomparable. He is altogether lovely. That's why we love him. The one who is our friend. This is your friend if you are trusting Christ. This is your friend. Well, that's the first helpful question to overcome apathy. Here's the second. In chapter 6, verse 1 to 3. Where has your beloved gone? Where's your beloved gone, most beautiful of women? Which way did your beloved turn that we may look for him with you? See, after that description, the friends go, Wow, he sounds quite amazing. Uh, we better go and find him for you. Uh, which direction did he head? Where did he go? And here's another point that makes it feel to me like this is a, a dream sequence. Because suddenly she discovers he's not missing after all. Look at verse two. "My beloved has gone down to his garden." that's how she described herself. To the beds of spices, to browse in the gardens and to gather lilies, I am my beloved, and my beloved is mine." He browses among the lilies." This is such an important principle notice with me the astonishing power of praise of declaring your adoration this is a song that moves from apathy experiences awful absence and then moves in this to this ardour her defense of her man that spurred her to verbalize Praise for her beloved just opens the door for the king to return, and for intimacy and fellowship to be enjoyed again. And so, to my non-Christian friends uh, listening today, do you want to know this incredible Jesus? There's no one like Him. Do you want to know Him? Where, where do you go to find Him? Well, go where you find people praising His name. Keep coming back to church. Find ways to spend time with people who know and love Jesus. And who talk about Jesus. Be around those sort of people. Because those are the people Jesus likes to be around. And you will meet Jesus if you go there. And my Christian friends. Who perhaps you're feeling a bit apathetic. This is the way back. This place ourselves from the center of our thoughts and preoccupations and fill our minds and hearts with the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ give yourself to consider Jesus and then do this next thing turn it into verbal praise turn it into prayer sing it out the glories of King Jesus be energetic about it And you will find he is very close. And you will find that you too will be transformed into his image with ever increasing glory. That's what we're learning in the evening. Come along. Come back to here. It's a great series in 2 Corinthians. What a thing to know this. I am my beloveds. I belong to Jesus. I belong to this glorious one. And here's the most incredible thought. And my beloved is mine. Being united to this Lord Jesus Christ just transforms everything.